as a foundation, we are talking to people globally all the time. I also believe that when we say one in five or 20%, that is grossly underestimated. And part of that is because if you look at our our nation's report card, 65, 66% of fourth graders can't read on grade level. And then that number gets worse when they test again at eighth grade. So clearly we're doing something wrong. I mean, that surely it can't be that 65% of our kids not being able to read at grade level is an acceptable standard. But, you know, how many of those kids even have, you know, mild dyslexia, maybe not with dysgraphia, but when you get the proper instruction, I mean, it's game changing. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode 155 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women, and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and, and then inspire you to be it. If I could speak in the thousands of ADHD women that I have had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not one. And Jennifer Knopf is no exception. So I met Jennifer a few months ago when she sent me an email. I had just interviewed educational diagnostician Lori Peterson, and I had told the story of my ADHD son who had just been diagnosed with dyslexia. And I was talking about how prior to Lori, it was so hard to find anyone who looked at learning challenges in an integrative way. In my experience, you have experts who know dyslexia and experts who know ADHD and experts who know visual processing and so on and so on. But no one seemed to understand how all these learning challenges integrated. And the thing is that there are so many comorbidities with ADHD that it's imperative that the people we're going to get help from know more than just their one area. I then said, if it was this hard for us as a family to finally figure this out after a decade, 
how does anyone else who has less resources than we do get help? I mean, it's literally impossible. And so that is how I met Jen. She reached out to me. We ended up talking. It turns out she's working on this very issue, and we had a lot in common. So I am just delighted to introduce you to Jen Knopf today. Jen is the founding director of Charitable Foundation, which is a public 501c3 that is committed to putting an end to the literacy crisis and ensuring all children learn to read, write, and spell by providing financially accessible, best-in-class Structure Literacy Training, known as Orton Gillingham, to all teachers. Jen is wife to husband Andrew and mom to two amazing kids, a daughter Mackenzie and a son Reed, who was diagnosed with dyslexia and dysgraphia in January of 2018 at seven years old and ADHD at 10 years old. Her son Reed's story of both struggle and strengths is the inspiration for Reed Charitable Foundation, but her heart for RCF, as she calls it, goes much deeper than that. Jen studied at the University of Florida and gained her BS in psychology with highest honors. She then obtained her Juris Doctorate, cum laude, from Stetson University College of Law and was part of its nationally ranked trial team. Jen's background as both a litigation and commercial real estate attorney made her uniquely suited for researching and advocating for her own son's needs. But she quickly learned that their family's battle to find support for her son's dyslexia is a battle that at least 20% of the population also faces. She also eventually learned that 65% of instruction that supports dyslexic students is actually considered the best type of literacy instruction for all students. Further, as she continued on this journey, she learned that ADHD is a very common comorbidity with dyslexia. They have similar characteristics, so one or both can get missed and often do. And at the age of 43, through her research to support her son and all kids like him, Jen learned that she herself has lived with undiagnosed ADHD her whole life. With her legal background, relentless determination, thank you, ADHD, and a steadfast belief that literacy is a fundamental human right, Jen is committed to the mission and purpose of this foundation named after her beloved son. Oh my God, Jen, did I get all that right? (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm just delighted to have you come talk about what it is that you do and your experiences and all of that. But first... I would love to talk about ADHD, your ADHD diagnosis. Is that okay? Sure. So can you tell me about it? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you, Tracy, for um, having me. What an incredible honor. And really, my ADHD uh, diagnosis that happened this year is largely as a result, I really credit you and, um, and uh, of course, my son, Reed. So I'll... I'll say that, you know, of course, Reed is kind of the catalyst for so much of what I've really learned in the last almost four years because of his dyslexia and kind of the journey that's taken us on. But when he was diagnosed with ADHD at the end of last year, his uh, psychiatrist, um, her name is Dr. Brady Bradshaw, and she's here locally in, in Orlando, Florida. And, um, she sent me your podcast and it was the interview that you did with Dr. Hallowell. And I run on my podcast listening days 
And I basically didn't run during that podcast because I kept stopping to take notes. (laughs) (laughs) And by the time I got home, I was kind of in this stupor of, oh my gosh, I mean, could I have ADHD? You know, so many of the issues and topics that were discussed in that interview with Dr. Hallowell and how ADHD can present itself in women and how that's oftentimes quite different than how it looks in um, young boys and men, just absolutely stopped me dead in my tracks. And then I, I sat here for the longest time and then still wet and sweaty from exercising, I got on my computer and, and emailed Dr. Hallowell. <laughs> and because what we do as a foundation amongst you know the training and things is also really trying to provide exceptional content for families to really support them in this journey. Because to your point, there's so few places to really get exceptional and correct content. And um, so he agreed to do a community education event for us. And he, of course, was amazing and really taught myself and so many that listen to uh, our organization about ADHD and, and women versus boys and medication and addiction. And so many myths were debunked. And at the end of that interview with him, he was like, ah, really want to um, assess you. And I was like, well, I would be honored. And I've been wondering myself, um, kind of based on what I'm hearing about what it looks like in women. And so he and I met separately. And I got my ADHD diagnosis. And now I see uh, our, our psychiatrist locally. And it's not only changed my life, and made so much sense of the last 43 years of my life um, that I made up excuses and reasons for certain things. And I, I had a justification for everything, but it really has changed a lot of women that I know and that are a part of RCF. Um, I share your podcasts and, and many of us are getting diagnosed and it's really a credit to you and the work that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you so much for that, for those kind words. So I'm curious, what were some of the symptoms that, you know, you had basically decided that it was because of other things, but now you know there's symptoms of ADHD. So you said for 43 years, you'd been making excuses. (laughs) What were they? Yeah. I mean, I think um, I'm definitely high functioning and I, you know, both Dr. Hallowell and and, um, Dr. Bradshaw I have somehow come up with the coping mechanisms that you read about, but no one told me. I just stumbled into them. But I would say some of the things that really hit home initially were, in in listening to your podcast with Dr. Hallowell, were rumination was a really big one um, for me. Interrupting, you know, kind of. There's a couple different things for me. I I think uh, I tend to interrupt, which is so annoying, and I constantly try to control that. And and I'll even think sometimes in conversations before I go into them, do not do that. Like just listen, you know, just listen. But there's a part of me that you know somebody says something and it triggers a thought, and I'm afraid I'm gonna forget it, you know, and, 
And so it's like, you just got to get it out there. And I see that in my son so much and in my daughter also, actually. And I always thought that was just like, gosh, it's just kind of rude because of course that's what I was told as a, as a kid and growing up and being a woman, we're supposed to not interrupt people and be polite. And so I kind of always was like, why can't I control that? Even when I'm conscious of it and going into a conversation and telling myself not to do it. And I still can't resist the urge. Have you had people tell you, um, I've heard this a couple times and every single time it's just kind of like a knife to the heart. Can you just stop for a minute and let me get a word in edgewise? (laughs) Of course, of course. And of course, it's probably why we're both lawyers. Because we don't let you look at a word in edgewise. (laughs) Yes. And I, you know, I think another thing with that, so then the rumination piece comes in, right? So Mm. after those Mm -hmm. conversations, I'm like, why did you do that? Why couldn't you? Why did you say that? Oh, why didn't, why? And I also ruminate about what I didn't say. And that it's kind of like that self-fulfilling prophecy problem where I'm like, see, that's why I can't not interrupt because then I forget to say the you know, thing that I really wanted to say. And that would have been so persuasive or helpful or whatever. And so it's this that, you know, there's that there's a do loop that I spend inordinate amounts of time in and like really wish I'd said something differently or I forgot to say something. And it it probably didn't impact anything, you know, if I rationally look at it, but I'll stay up all night, can't sleep, you know, thinking about how I could have done it better. And I've been that way, you know, my whole life. Like that's a really, like a really big common theme for me, even now. Can I ask you, is that interrupting, what didn't I say, what did I say, rumination loop, is it better now that you know why? Yes, for sure. And because I understand where it's coming from, I can quiet my mind much better. Whereas before, um, I would associate what I thought people thought and then attribute that to myself. And then now that's you know, impacting how you feel about yourself and and what you perceive other people think about. I mean, what an awful, (laughs) what an, you know, like, oh my gosh. Um, And so that, I I would say that's a big one for me, but also like definitely perfectionism, you know, tendencies, which to me growing up and, and learning about ADHD, I wouldn't think that an ADHD personality would be a perfectionist at all or being hyper- organized and, you know, or hyper-focused, like that's the opposite of what we make it sound like. So a thousand percent, I'm not, I don't have ADHD because where I see my son and husband struggle with executive functioning, I've put all these things in place to not struggle, you know, there. So I'm like, no, I definitely don't have ADHD. But, you know, as I listened and, and heard more about why somebody might do that that's a female and struggling with executive functioning i'm like oh for sure i i've created all these different systems and lists and relists and uh, you know it's it there's it's scary the amount of work i put into trying to stay organized and there are seasons i think the other part that spoke to me was I figure something out. And then of course, as life always does, things change and more happens. And now my system's not working. 
and I panic. And then I go into a new season of hyper organization and focus to get it under control. And in your podcast with Dr. Hallowell, one of the topics he talked about is once you have children and, oh my gosh, I mean, you know, having Mackenzie, my daughter, um, who's my older um, child, it's like, just when I would figure out our schedule and how to feed her and nurse her and her routine for sleeping and changing and playing and going to bed, well, now they go through some, now you have to feed them solid foods. You're like, what? So I have to figure out like a whole new thing and, you know, and, and trying to figure out how to get out of the house the first time I was like, how does anyone take a baby anywhere? This is insane. Like who does this? And, you know, you do it and you figure it out. But I remember that overwhelm in every new phase and thinking, what is wrong with me? Like women have been doing this since the beginning of time. And for me, but I wouldn't articulate it to anybody else because I was ashamed. But for me, you know, why is this so hard? Everybody else can figure this out. And you, you know, are this basket case internally about whether or not you're doing a good job. And, you know, so that really, you know, resonated with me. And and now RCF is like that, you know, it was small and we're growing and I was running it by myself and you know, we're still very, you know, s- a small staff, but the opportunities and the things are coming at such a rate that it's getting to where it's hard to keep it organized. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. When you were talking about, you know, all of the responsibilities, the first thing I wrote down was women and I circled it. Mm. It is no surprise that women with ADHD struggle so much more as their responsibilities increase. And I mean, if you are a man and you can't get your kid out of the house and you can't get dinner on the table and you can't help them get their homework done, like nobody cares, right? Men are supposed to do that. It's because it's all hoisted on women. Mm -hmm. And And it's almost charming. Like if they attempt it, right? Like, oh, God bless him that he tried to make dinner. Whereas we're like complete failures if if that didn't happen. And part of it's there's a societal piece and then we buy into that and yeah, it's so much. And then if you're a professional on, you know, on top of that and yeah, you know, and then uh, going into kind of then read, have it, you know, then having a child with any kind of learning difference or struggle, you know, or a family member or a parent or whatever. I mean, it's just the caretaking, it just increases and increases and the anxiety you know, I, I probably have always had some level of anxiety, but holy smokes, you know, once I had a kiddo that was really struggling, you know, I, I never experienced anything like that. So, yeah. And, and, you know, I think some of the other things I would say would be stress and worry and definitely like the body dysmorphia. I can really, you know, relate to that. Um, you know, always so, so hard on myself and definitely never feeling like I was, you know, good enough and, you know, just constantly feeling like I had to achieve something else always in order to feel good enough and nothing's ever enough. Uh, so you have that, um, and I can tell you do, <laughs> you have that drivenness ambition component as well, that that's kind of your hyperactivity. Mm-hmm. 
for sure. It's a, and I consider it, you know, a, a gift. Um, it can, it can, you know, wear you into the ground, but it's also, you know, when you both with dyslexia and with ADHD, when we talk to individuals that are really highly successful, you know, you constantly hear about that relentless drive, energy, grit, never giving up, resilience. I always, like I say, I've got a reason for everything. And I kind of attributed that to my father's work ethic and watching, you know, my dad and really idolizing him. And he never took breaks and he, you know, we never took vacations and he always worked really hard and I admired him. And so I just thought that I'm like that because my dad was like that and I admired his work ethic. Um, But really, I think are you that's sure you aren't like that because your dad was like that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You can really, you can really, um, if you're thinking about it, and I'm pretty cognitive, like I'm always wondering, you know, I'm a fairly curious person. Of course you are. And you're always, ADHD. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, you wonder those things and then you tell yourself a story and, you know, I can make logical sense of the reason why I do things. And um, so- that's definitely where my ADHD shows up for sure. Is just I'm like a dog with a bone. Yep, I, I mm-hmm. use that to describe myself all the time. <laughs> so, do you think your father was ADHD? Now, with hindsight, I, I really do, and uh, it's you know that my family history is so interesting to me because um, there's a lot. Of, my my father does not have any addiction, but there's a lot of addiction on both sides of my family. Um, entrepreneurs inventors, and of course, no diagnosis of anyone of ADHD or dyslexia. And so when Reed was first going through the psychoed evaluation, of course, you know, one of the first questions is, okay, so who in your family? And both my husband and I are like, nobody. And I remember her face, you know, where she was kind of like, "Mm -hmm," you know, (laughs) and I remember kind of being offended, like, listen, do you think I'm I'm not lying. I mean, I would tell you if, you know, I'm not trying to hinder the process, but it was, you know, clear that she's been doing this long enough to know, oh my goodness, you guys are so clueless. And we were. Um, So my family is, you know, it's interesting that um, even though I run a foundation about this, there is, it's taken about three years to start getting some dialogue but even to this day, I think my dad would totally disagree. Um, you know, that I think he would totally deny deny that. And I'm very careful of who I say in my family, I think, even though I feel pretty confident. Um, because there's this level of shame and and the myths and the stigma, which is so wrong and so preventable but it's so real. And um, so it's why I love what you're doing. And I love that you're talking about it. And I I probably can talk about it to the point of being annoying, but I, I see how much damage it does to individuals and to families because of the lack of awareness and knowledge and truth and identification. Um, And it needs to change. Absolutely. So can I ask you, what did your dad do? Was he an entrepreneur? So my dad is actually um, an equine veterinarian. 
Ah. And so I grew up in a, um, well, he was a veterinarian, but, but ultimately specialized in equine veterinary medicine and, uh, was an orthoscopic surgeon. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, then he also was a real estate broker. He also (laughs) just recently, yeah, you know, also recently, um, uh, you know, well, about, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 years ago, got into literally like the tractor sales business and just sold (laughs) this business. And he grew this business like crazy with no background knowledge, you know, I mean, no, no business and knowing how to do that. Um, but just did. And, uh, and now he's, (laughs) I, I, he's working on actually a patent on a medication right now. And so, you know, he's 70 years old and, I don't think will ever not work. He works his brains out. You know, he works harder than most um, people my age that, you know, should be working as hard as he is. And um, I don't think he'll ever stop. I can relate. Mm -hmm. So Jen, (laughs) talk to us about Read Charitable Foundation. So you're a litigator, you have two kids, a super busy life. What made you decide that you had to do this? Well, uh, it's my, will make me tear up. Um, it's my sweet baby boy. Ultimately I have a 15 year old daughter, Mackenzie, who is not dyslexic and school, you know, everything came really easy to her. And by, you know, two years old, she's recognizing letters and letter sounds. And I wasn't working with her. Of course I read you know, read to my children since they were in utero. So of course they had access to words and and those sorts of things, but you know, everything just came easy to her. And from, uh, from a reading perspective, that was my experience too. I definitely worked hard in school. Um, and things didn't, you know, it's not like I got great grades just by not doing anything. I worked hard, but, but reading, I'm definitely not dyslexic. You know, I, I picked up reading, um, easily. And so did Ken's, and then um, four and a half years later, with a lot of effort, um, I had my son read, and we actually lost a son before we had Mackenzie. And so I didn't think that I that God would give me another son because I was so heartbroken mm. from the loss of our first child. And so, you know, there's this connection to him. He looked like our first, you know, he just, it's almost like the reincarnation of, of this son that we lost. And so there's a connection oh. to read that's, um, that's, you know, very, it's deep and cosmic and there's something, you know, more to it. Uh, but he's equally as bright and, and articulate, you know, as his sister. Um, but, you know, when he was getting to two and three, you know, he was not, recognizing letters and letter sounds. And, you know, he was in the same little preschool that she had been in. And I moved him to another school and thought, oh, you know, they're not, their director changed and you know, maybe he needs to be at a different preschool. So I moved him to a different preschool and, um, you know, same thing, just really wasn't learning. But, but at the same time, everybody was like, he's bright. I mean, he's very articulate. He's a boy. Don't worry about it. Everybody catches up. And I think that, you know, fit my gender stereotype for boys and girls, girls mature faster, you know, Kenzie, it, it just, you know, it, it, any, any motherly instinct that I had, and it was very real would get squashed 
um, and almost shamed out of me, you know, like, listen, we're the experts, you're a lawyer, we're teachers, we go to school for this, you go to school for that. And, and, you know, he was in fancy dancy private schools and whatnot. So I kind of- you were doing the exact same thing with him. Actually, you were doing more than you were doing with your daughter who needed nothing, right? Yes. Yes. Your situation totally mirrors mine. And so- I know. I know know what to do. Right. And so then I moved into the school that she was at when he was old enough at K4. And he was going to have my best friend as his K4 teacher. And um, she became my best friend by being Mackenzie's K4 teacher. Oh my gosh. Yes. So she's that kind of teacher. I mean, she's just- She's gifted and brilliant and loves these kids. She has her master's degree, just incredibly creative, loves these kids more than in some cases their parents love them. Just amazing. And so Reed had her and, you know, she would say the same thing to me. And I would ask her questions like, do you think he's dyslexic? Because he would do letter reversals. And of course, I didn't know any better at the time and thought that that's what dyslexia was. And she was like, well, at this age, you know, letter reversals are, you know, are typical and, you know, that's not really, you know, what we look for. And she's like, really, you know, the only kind of training I have is if they describe the words falling off the page. And she's like, I've asked him that and he doesn't say that. So, you know, I just, he's a little boy, Jen, and, you know, yeah, it's different than Ken's, but, um, you know, I think it's fine. And so then fast forward to K5, I had her as his reading tutor and it, which is crazy that a five-year-old would have a tutor, uh, but he did. And, you know, K5 kind of went, came and went, same thing. And we were working on, you know, sight words and my gosh, you can know, I one ask, day. Can I ask mm-hmm. your friend, what was her master's in? Uh, her master's was in uh, elementary education. So not specifically reading and not specifically, you know, ESE. But um, still had so- no knowledge of dyslexia. No, I mean, yeah. you know, you know, yep. this, the, you know how this really goes. Yep. And so, you know, K5, sa- same deal. And then fast forward to first grade. Now he gets to wear a backpack to school and be a big kid at the school. And he's so excited and he's such a social, um, you know, kid and just cannot wait to start first grade. But probably two weeks in to the first grade school year, the morning started getting really bad. You know, I can't get him out of bed. I can't get him dressed. I can't get him to brush his teeth where, you know, he's forgetting a shoe when really he was like hiding the shoe. And at that point I was still practicing law. So I'm like, I got to get to work, man. And I'm taking him to school and realizing he's missing a shoe. And now we're going back home. Yeah. I mean, it was like, things are starting to kind of rapidly fall apart and I couldn't put my finger on what the problem was. And, um, and he wasn't, you know, he's just a little guy. He was only six. So then I started getting phone calls at work every day around the same time, started headaches and tummy aches. Um, and then finally they, they wouldn't let him call me for that. So he started watching medical shows. Um, he was watching the good doctor and getting medical jargon and using it so now, you know, the nurse is calling and she's giggling and she's like, he's here. And he says, he's got right side paralysis and he's just so cute. And, you know, myocardial infarctions and, 
I mean, it was so everybody and now he was getting to do it because it was so adorable. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, I'm at work and I'm like, okay. And because of the timing, and of course, lawyers track all time, I'm very acutely aware that it's kind of the same time every day. So I was like, it's adorable, but but <laughs> but what class is he in? And of course, it was English language arts. But I, and you know, I kind of thought maybe he was getting bullied or somebody's, but he's friends with everybody. So that didn't make a ton of sense. And it took it till November of his first grade year. And I was working with him on a spelling test and he just broke down and he was just like, mom, I mean, I can't ever say it without, without crying, not, not in almost four years time, but he was like, mom, I, uh, I'm the dumbest kid in the school. And everyone makes fun of me and says, Reed can't read. And I have to stand up in front of the class every day to read. And everybody laughs at me, you know, and he's like, I just, I don't belong in school. And he was six. Oh my gosh. And he's brilliant. You know, I mean, they had that, the other, you know, and I've just, so I never had had to go into the school before because everything was coming up roses for Kim's. You know, but I went in and I met with the teacher and the lower school director and teacher admitted, you know, that that's what was happening. And her explanation for it was, you know, there's just no reason he shouldn't be able to read and he cares about what other kids think. So I just feel like, you know, if we make him do that, eventually he's going to put in the effort. He's just being lazy. It's like and ADHD, like, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And just I try like, harder. Right. He's just not trying. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, let me just say this. He is not lazy. I'm like, we are killing ourselves at home. We are, you know, there is no joy in, in education right now. We, I am killing and drilling this kid on sight words and spelling tests and it, it's miserable, you know, and I need help. Like, what do you suggest? The school has been around 50 years at that point. And, um, you know, they were like, honestly, it sounds like you're doing everything you should be doing. And I was like, well, this is not working. He's falling apart and he's not having success. And we all agree that he should be having success. So what do I do? And, you know, they were like, well, you know, you could get him, you know, have an academic uh, evaluation. We don't think you're going to find anything. It's probably a waste of money. And really, we just think it's an effort issue. And, but it, everything was colliding for me, you know, like the, the mom instinct and the clear effort that he was putting in and that I was putting in. And I I felt like I was losing him, you know, at six, I'm like losing the spirit, this like happy, joyful human. I was losing him. So we got the academic testing and we found out that he had dyslexia and dysgraphia and the academic tester explain? said, "Can you explain sure. what dysgraphia is?" Sure. I mean, as you know, like I, this is not my expertise in terms of you know the science and all of that. But you know, dys- dysgraphia is the the getting the words on the page. So there's an OT component to it, a motor component to it, and he never has had um, OT. Everybody's always kind of said his pencil grip and therapy. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. He's always had a decent pencil grip and those sorts of things, but he grips it really, really hard. There's a motor component to it for him, but there's also that that combination of dyslexia and dysgraphia is kind of a beast. 
So, you know, there's the reading, writing, spelling piece, how to spell a word, how to sound it out, but also trying to organize it. So there's, you know, your thoughts and getting them on the piece of paper and in an organized way. So it also coincides with the executive functioning piece. And so that, and of course now he has, you know, we know he has ADD too. So it's tough to describe it completely because Reed has this like trifecta of comorbidities that really fight against each other. And it's like, if you, if, if he just had one, it would be a little bit easier to kind of pull out where the struggle is. But, um, I, I would say the dysgraphia now that 80, the ADD piece is under control and he's really had awesome remediation for dyslexia. It's the motor dysgraphia piece that is really hard for him. So, you know, the key would be for kids with dysgraphia is to be able to type and to do speech to text because it's that motor piece of getting it on the paper. There's also an organization of thoughts that's hard, you know, also with dysgraphia. So there's really two pieces to it. There is a cognitive, you know, organizational piece, but also, like I say, when you have dyslexia, He's not only got to think about what he wants to say, which if he's saying it orally, oh my gosh, he'll talk your ear off and tell you the best story ever. But if he has to sit down and write it, now he's got to remember what he wants to say in the order, sit down and write it and spell it correctly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the Olympics of mental gymnastics for a kid that has all three things going on. So is it fair to say that when we're talking about dysgraphia, I mean, the way the writing looks on the paper is it's really poor handwriting. And also, does it include, you know, where where I remember with my son, where he would just start writing on one side of the page and all of a sudden he'd be over completely on the other side. Like he could not, he could not address an envelope. Yes. It's spacing, Mm -hmm. it's size, and it's also just the handwriting itself. So, I mean, it reads handwriting when it would come home prior to any support. I mean, it was scary. Like you're literally, there's nothing to be read. You know, it's, it is like lines on it, random lines on a page. It might as well be abstract artwork. Yes. (laughs) Right. Like, I mean, it's like, I don't know what to do with this. This is scary. Plus once he got to where he was getting support for the dyslexia and, and we were actually starting to get some words, but the spacing would be crazy. So you know, if he was writing read, it would be like R E next to each other. And then an yeah. E, you know, a, a, an inch or more away from it. And then the D might be all the way at the end of the page or on the next line. So there's also like not an awareness that a word is a whole word yeah, and it has to stay together. So, you know, or you've got to put a dash and let somebody know, Hey, I'm still, this is still part of the same word. If you're going to the next line. So there's that. And then also size. So these, these kiddos, you know, and we still have this happen where you get a worksheet and, you know, even the irony is sometimes it's like, here's a graphic organizer for your thoughts because you have dysgraphia and dyslexia and ADHD. So, you know, and here's this little tiny, these little tiny bubbles and, you know, you're now expected to put all your thoughts in these little tiny bubbles. He can't do that. Um, he could type it and and then print it out and cut, cut out what he did and, and paste it into your little tiny bubbles. But if he's got to handwrite his idea into 10 little tiny bubbles, disaster town. 
So once Reed's diagnosed, you go back to the school and you say, well, it's dyslexia. What happens next? What do they say? Well, you know, I'm thinking, oh, thank God, like they've been around for 50 years. This is this Mm -hmm. highly lauded school that also everybody talks about, oh my gosh, their English language arts program is amazing. These kids come out being incredible writers, understanding grammar. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. And, And I also am told one in five kids have dyslexia. So we are not the only folks to have, you know, grace the halls of this school in the last 50 years of one in five children, you know, have dyslexia. And, um, well, and the and thing I, is, I just, I, I want to make sure that people understand this or, you know, our listeners understand this, that there's all different variations in dyslexia. It's like height where you can have people yeah. that are really short, people that are in the middle and people, you know, that are really tall and dyslexia is the same thing. So you may not struggle with it that much, or you can really, really struggle with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's and in kind of like, you know, autism, I talk about it like it's kind of a spectrum, you know, there's really profound dyslexia, and then there can be mild dyslexia. And in Reed's case, he was both mild, mildly dyslexic and mildly dysgraphic. But that combo is nasty. And also this hidden ADD piece that nobody was talking about. So, you know, that that made a huge difference when we finally figured that out. And but, that's um, what's so important about this yeah. because it's I think people think that oh my gosh, they, you know, if they're dyslexic, they can't do anything. And probably oh. teachers think that too, right? Yes. But the truth of the matter is there's so much that they can do that it masks the dyslexia. Yes. And they, well, and that's how a lot of kids get missed. Right. And, and that's, you know, part of the definition of dyslexia is that it's, it's an unexpected difficulty and it's unexpected because they're so bright. So, you know, this is not, and I think that's a huge, that's one of the big, big myths about dyslexia is that, oh, you know, we all say that and all think that how quickly our child learns to read, write, or spell is indicative of how smart Mm. they are. Yeah. Um, and, and that's how school makes them feel too. Cause it's like this, this measure that we assess kids on in terms of their intelligence. But the truth is that intelligence has nothing to do with dyslexia. And typically children with dyslexia at a minimum have an average IQ and typically are much higher than that. So, um, and it is how they get missed a lot because, and, and Reed would have, you know, if, if we had not been in crisis mode with his emotional state. And, and that's another thing. Like they end up having these emotional issues when they didn't start with them because they're so bright. He's sitting there like, I, you know, it would almost be easier if they weren't bright. And so that they didn't know, right? Like, yes. that they're like oh, they would they have no way. They're not living to their potential. They know they're as smart. They yes. can't show it. And, and they don't know why. Just, torture, torture for them. Um, okay. So you went back to the school, you thought yes. that they'd have all these services and you discover crickets and tumbleweeds, cricket, crickets and tumbleweeds. Yeah. And, um, and also I got the, the, this term Orton Gillingham from the neuropsych of eval. And she's like, he has to have this. And of course I have no idea what that is, but I can research and so I start doing that. And there at that time, this is almost four years ago now, there was one tutor in Central Florida who was qualified at any level, certified at any level in the Academy of Orton Gillingham to tutor students with dyslexia. 
And of course, her wait list was a mile long and it's very expensive and we're not getting it in school, but we need it five days a week. So now we're going to take whatever we can get whenever we can get it, which then means no activities after school. So, you know, at the time he was playing t-ball with a group of boys from his school that he adored. And it was just a great, you know, great group of parents, great group group of, uh, of boys and girls. And um, we had to stop that. And it was something he was good at, but, you know, we can't not read. So it was like, okay, we've got to give up this thing. And I, I will say, I went into it so naive, you know, even though I was told this is what he needs, I still didn't understand what dyslexia was. I, I thought, okay, he, he reverses his letters or he reads backwards or something. And we'll do this little tutoring thing for a while and poof, you know, it'll all be better. And he'll, he won't read backwards anymore and moving on. I, I, you know, even with the diagnosis, I did not have a clue what this really looked like and what was really going to be our life. But, you know, pretty quickly I'm sitting there in these tutoring sessions, I'm leaving work early Everybody's kind of rolling their eyes. Oh, she's leaving again. Of course, I'm up to like three o'clock in the morning getting my work done. It's not like I'm letting things fall by the wayside. Uh, my daughter is resentful because she feels like everything's about read and yeah. our whole, you know, right? So that's creating a huge problem. Uh, I'm not, to your point earlier, I'm not cooking dinners anymore because now once we get home from tutoring, uh, which you know is like six o'clock at night. Now we also have homework still left to do. So you know we weren't finishing. This little boy was not finishing his day until about eight o'clock, and sometimes later because sometimes he would fall apart, and we would walk the streets of the neighborhood crying, both of us, um, just so overwhelmed and frustrated and um, scared you know, scared. Like, what does this mean? And, uh, I just, I, I, of course I was talking about it, which I say, of course, obviously most people don't talk about this, but, um, maybe I'm an or- oversharer because of ADHD, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm looking for my one in five, like who are my, like, where's, where's our tribe? Who are the people that are going through this ahead of me that I can, ask for advice. Like, what do I, what do we do? Is, are we going to be okay? And there was nobody, you know, it was like, except for the moms that were in those, the waiting room Mm -hmm. at the tutoring. And, and we may or may not make eye contact with each other, you know, like you may or may not be talking about this. I was, I felt completely alone and like I was going to lose read. And I think the, the piece of that that I can see now that I was so scared and that makes me cry is, you know, we'd already lost a child and I didn't know. I think the only reason I survived it besides faith was that I didn't know what was coming next. You know, it was like, (laughs) you didn't know, you know, it's got to get better. It's got to get better. Right. It's hope. Right. Right. Yeah. And so with Reed, it was this sense of like, there's so many ways we can lose a child. And as I'm reading about dyslexia and I'm learning about addiction and depression and suicide rates and incarceration and all these things, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a thousand ways I can lose this boy and I cannot, I cannot survive losing him. And so the motivation 
not only to get him what he needed and see the impact that it was having on him, but then recognizing that there are so many families who do not have access to what we have access to that are just as worthy and deserving and capable as my son and their parents love them just as much as I love Reed and they are not getting what they need. So we have to make this training accessible to all teachers so that all children can get it because the suffering that these children go through and what it can do to them for the rest of their lives is completely preventable, completely preventable. Oh my gosh. So I think about my son, he went to a Catholic elementary school. Then I think in fifth grade, we, he went to a pricey country day type school. Then he went back to the Catholic junior high school. Then he went to a huge public high school. Then he went to a small independent startup high school founded by a billionaire. And then he went back to the Catholic high school to do his last year of high school. And I mean, he went from expensive schools, you know, really expensive schools to mid-range to a Catholic to public high schools. And, you know, nobody knew really what ADHD was, but mm-hmm. they knew even less about dyslexia. Mm-hmm. All of the struggles he had in all the different classes and no one ever suggested dyslexia. So how big of a problem is this? Would you say that our county is really not unusual? Oh, for sure. A thousand percent. And I mean, I, I talk to people globally about dyslexia. As a foundation, we are talking to people globally all the time. It is a global issue. It is not a state issue. It is not just a U.S. issue. It is not just a your district issue. It is a global issue issue. And I also believe that when we say one in five or 20%, I genuinely believe that that is grossly, grossly underestimated. And and part of that is because if you look at our, our nation's report card, 65, 66% of fourth graders can't read on grade level. And then that number gets worse when they test again at eighth grade. So clearly we're doing something wrong. I mean, that surely it can't be that 65% of our kids not being able to read at grade level is an acceptable standard. But, you know, how many of those kids even have, you know, mild dyslexia, maybe not with dysgraphia, but when you get the proper instruction, I mean, it's game changing. Uh, And I think that about ADHD too. Oh my gosh, now that I know what it is between dyslexia and ADHD, (laughs) I spent a lot of time diagnosing people in my head. <laughs> um, I don't always say it. And, and the same thing with when I watch sports programs, when I watch documentaries, when I watch movies or musicians or actors and actresses that I just think are mesmerizing or so incredibly gifted at a sport, you know, they're the best of the best, like you can't take your eyes off of them. I have gotten to, into a habit of Googling, you know, is so-and-so dyslexic and or ADHD. And I would say eight times out of 10, when somebody is just awe-inspiring to me and I do that search, <laughs> you find out that they, they're one of the ones. My family always rolls their eyes now because 
when they see me watching something and I get on my phone, they're like, oh no, you know, she's going to do it again. I'm like, guess who's dyslexic? I completely agree. I think neurodivergence (laughs) is predictive of brilliance, basically. And if you don't get squashed. Right. Exactly. Exactly. In in all the shame and don't... They just need to know what it is so that they can build the workarounds because you can't build anything if you don't understand why your brain works the way it works. Now, when it comes to ADHD, I have seen numbers all over the place as far as the percentage of people who have ADHD who also have dyslexia. I think I've seen numbers as high as 60%. Mm -hmm. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah. So in the Orton-Gillingham training that we do through the academy, one of our fellows says that it's at least 50%. And then with boys, there is an exponential percentage above that. So even more common that a boy with dyslexia would also have ADHD. So if you have one, you've got to be looking for the other. Um, And great if that's not the case, but my gosh, you know, what I found with Reed, once we identified the ADD piece and um, he chose to do medicine, that was a decision that we uh, provided to him. And he was 10 when he decided. And I let Reed is old enough now. And we talk about it so much that I include him in those decisions. And I said, you know, this is something you should know exists. And you may not decide you have any interest in it ever, or maybe you only have interest in college or in high school when you know things ramp up but you should know that you know for 80% of people with ADD this can really help and it may not work for you it is like i mean literally the first day that he took it by the end of the day he came to me 10 years old and he's like mom this medicine is crazy and i was like it is i said is it making you feel bad she said you, you know like you could have a headache or mm-hmm. <laughs> or be dizzy and he's like no it's nothing like that he goes it's making me feel like I want to do school when I don't want to do school. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Reed. And now he will say it changed. Like he will say it changed my life and that he's so much happier because he was so frustrated. Even with Orton Gillingham, he was doing so good, but, but still like, just the effort involved, you know, just that sustained effort when something's really hard to have the support of medication has absolutely changed his life. Oh, that is just so lovely to hear. Yeah. So um, the one thing that I wanted to mention is I think the thing that has been most shocking to me is that people who specialize in reading, so they get a master's in reading. They have no training in dyslexia as part of that master's in reading. How can that be? If dyslexia is, you're struggling to read, how can they not have any training on dyslexia? Do you have any idea why? I I, I have a lot of theories um, on why after spending, and and honestly, I talked to a number of universities, um, particularly local, but, um, you know, there's a few things. One, there, you know, even PhD, we, we have had PhDs take the Orton Gillingham training, um, that, you know, are speech language pathologists and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't know this. Or, 
you know, I understood the science. Sometimes people will get, you know, if you're, if you're at that level, a PhD level, you might have the pedagogy on the science of reading and how the human brain actually learns to read. But it, they admit that no one ever gave them the practical implementation piece of how you actually implement that with a human being that needs you to teach them how to read. So, but, but the, the most common um, feedback we get every single training we do, um, teachers always cry and there's nothing sad about the training. I mean, it's actual physical training of how to do it. But if you, the longer you've been teaching, particularly little guys and gals, and every year you have kids that you can't teach how to read, um, and you think, why can't I do that? Uh, why do I always miss some? And then you realize that if you just had this instruction, not only could you have helped that kiddo, but you could have helped that parent and you could have, you know, you could have had some discussions as opposed to they're lazy or not trying or stupid or, you know, all these other things that these poor kids believe about themselves um, and the guilt that the parents feel. But the longer teachers have been teaching, the more, the longer they cry about the realization that it was really quite simple and, and quite preventable. But, you know, I, there's, I think there's a lot of reasons. There's obviously big lobbies for um, um, curriculum, and there are not big lobbies for, for science-based curriculum. There, this is a, you know, this is a billion-dollar business curriculum. So um, there, with all problems, I think ultimately there's people that are benefiting <laughs> and people that are suffering. So, and money is usually a part of that, but there's also, there's a, there's a humbleness required. Um, if you've been a professor or a teacher for a long time and a realization that there, there might be a better way to do it. And that what you've been doing may not have been effective for a lot of kids. Um, that's hard. You know, I mean, that really takes a level of humbleness that is hard and, and a level of realization that um, I, I, I lost a lot. I failed a lot of people along the way, but it wasn't, it's not their fault. You know, I mean, I guess that's the thing. You don't know what you don't know. And I feel sorry for teachers when I talk to them because what I hear a lot is I, I have been feeling like for however long I've been teaching, I missed the day or I wasn't paying attention on the day that they told us how to do this. And then I went to school to teach children and I assume everybody else knows it and I don't. And I can't possibly say to anyone that I don't know how to do this because it is fundamentally the basis of my job. How can I tell a parent, I don't really know how to teach your child to read if they don't just memorize it and pick it up? I mean, how can they say that? They're going to go to my principal and they're going to tell them and I'm going to lose my job. Um, there's a huge level of shame for everybody is what I have found. And, um, 
I'm grateful to get to do the work that we do and get to talk to teachers because I have a softness that I did not have when Reed was struggling and I was so angry about why they wouldn't have this knowledge. Because as parents, we expect that they do and they've just never gotten it. It's just not, it, it, you know, there's very few colleges of education that provide real instruction on the science of reading. And it's one of the things as a foundation we're working really hard to try to change because what we're doing is going back and back training teachers that should have gotten this at the college of education pre-service level. So the hope is, you know, that we can really start changing this at the college of education level so that every time there's a graduation, we aren't then going, oh man, how many more teachers do we have to go back and train in this basic knowledge, which by the way, is vital for dyslexic students, but it is also the best instruction for all kids. That's what's so crazy. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want that. You know, my child doesn't have a learning difference. My child doesn't have dyslexia. We don't need this. This is remediation. Well, it it is essential for dyslexic students to get it without question, but, but it is also the best for your child, including my daughter, Mackenzie. Uh, Reed was able to sound out a word that it was actually the word incendiary that Mackenzie, even though she's a 99th percentile English language arts student, could not sound out because she'd never been given the skills. She is just an excellent memorizer, has awesome working memory. And when she sees it a couple of times, she knows it. Have you found that there are certain states that are doing a good job with dyslexia versus others? Or are yeah, they, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, the the Northeast is um, definitely more aware, um, and there are more dyslexia specific private schools up in the Northeast. Um, Virginia, the fellow that one of the fellows that we work with through the academy, she actually has the contract with the Department of Education for the state of Virginia to train teachers in Orton-Gillingham. So they're, you know, kind of working on that there. They don't have as systemized a process as what we're trying to do here in Orange County, Florida. But, you know, there are definitely states that are a little bit more aware. But I will say, you know, Arkansas is, um, is a state that has the best legislation on dyslexia. And you know, they've got a group of advocates that are incredible and have worked for the last decade to get the, the best legislation. But what they don't have is the support of the school districts and administrators and teachers. So they're still having an incredibly hard time um, because they don't have the buy-in of the very people that need to implement the legislation. So uh, it's, it's a, it's an enormous battle that I have to admit that there are some days I just don't understand why everybody's fighting this. If really we are a country of opportunity, if that's really true, the very first thing we have to do is teach our children, the 95% of them that are cognitively able to read, how to actually read. And the statistics for individuals who cannot read proficiently is staggering. And so I genuinely believe that if if we are successful in our mission of making sure that every teacher is trained so that every child can read, 
that there isn't a single societal cause that isn't drastically improved. You know, all these things we talk about from, you know, mental health issues to, you know, societal issues and race to finding, you know, uh, the cure for cancer and, you know, COVID and political. I mean, these brains, these neurodiverse brains, dyslexia, ADHD, these are the innovators, the creators, the entrepreneurs, the out of the box thinkers. They solve the problems that neurotypical folks cannot because those folks have to stay within the rules and within the box. They're stuck in there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I honestly feel sorry. Like you, it, it's, it's, yes, you can toe the line and you sit in class perfectly and you don't move a muscle and you don't speak out of turn. And, you know, it, there's a, I guess a time and a place for that. That's really appreciated. But at the end of the day, once you get out of school, what we really need are problem solvers um, yeah, well, the people, in the box people, we need them to work for us, right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> we we tell them what to do. I, we we say a few different things about that in our in our household, but yes, absolutely, we need we need those people too. The best organizations, I think, have both. Um, so, so how do you how do you choose what teachers? Um, get to be part of your program and get to be trained in Orton Gillingham. Like, how does that all work? Are you going state by state? Is it whoever reaches out to you? How does that so work? That, yeah. So it kind of it, it started initially, really, even before RCF started. That locally, my husband and I were paying privately to send teachers to training that wanted it, or if a parent came to us because uh, I got I got trained in the sixty hours um, three years ago. And just, you know, mind blown. So I was like, holy smokes, that this is this is worth investing in. People should have this. And so that's how we started. Then we started the foundation because there were other people that wanted to invest in getting teachers trained. And so it, it really started off anybody that came to us, if we had the money to do it, we would and we could find a training, we would get them in the training. Um, then as a foundation, we actually started, you know, doing our own training. So we weren't working through a third party which uh, also helped us to really reduce the cost. So a lot of people are making money off of this that really shouldn't be. So that's another just fundamental problem, which is why the foundation is so important. But um, we were training teachers here locally, and um, we developed a partnership with our district, um, which is Orange County Public Schools. We're the ninth largest school district in the country. Uh, they allowed us to train 80 teachers um, in January. And the feedback from those teachers was so not only overwhelmingly positive in terms of like best professional development we've ever had, but also this is vital information that I can't just know this. Like my whole team has to know this. This is how we change things for kids. So our district has asked us to scale the training um, for all 15,000 of their K through fifth grade teachers, including ESE, reading interventionists, reading coaches. So that's a huge, I mean, I thought it would take us a decade to get to the point where somebody, a big district would ask us to do something like that. So what we do now in order to honor that commitment, but also make it accessible to other teachers, we, whenever we do a training, we give 50% of the spots to Orange County Public Schools 
because also it because it is a large district, the data coming out of the district is important um, and persuasive, hopefully, uh, for other districts to potentially follow. So we want to make sure we do it really well here and that um, teachers are getting implementation support and that they're doing it to fidelity because obviously that's critical. It's not just enough to get trained. I kind of liken it to law school. You know, you and I got out of law school and uh, you really have no idea how to practice law. It's all theory. <laughs> and, you know, I had the gift of getting to do um, trial team. And so I did know how to function in a courtroom. Um, and, and many of my peers did not because I did it all the time. And I was constantly critiqued by, um, you know, practicing lawyers and sitting judges. And so um, I really had great experience in that. But if I hadn't had that, I feel bad for anybody that graduates law school and then is expected to go, you know, argue a motion. You don't even know which, you know, table you're supposed to sit at. No one tells you that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. So it's just, it's the same thing. Like the teachers get trained, but they need some implementation support. So we have staff that helps with that and they do it for free. So the other 50% of the spots that we offer are open to anybody anywhere. So we have trained teachers in 22 different states um, in this past year. In uh, January, we have a teacher training from Nigeria. Uh She will be up in the middle of the night um, for five days to get the training because it's, you know, right now we're only able to offer it Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we're, We're working on changing some things and being able to kind of scale it. But right now that's how it is. And also a teacher in Hawaii. Um, and we provide the training for free for public school educators as long as they provide proof of current employment in the college of ed- or uh, uh, in a public school district. And they also have to provide a formal letter from their administration that they will be allowed to use what they learn in the training with students during the school day. This training does typically cost anywhere from uh, eight hundred to you know I've seen it as high as four thousand dollars per teacher. So it is expensive and it's in high demand. So we want to make sure if we're sending somebody for free and and they're taking a spot that they're able to actually use it with students. And it's not just, you know, PD that they're putting on their um, continuing education. And then for anybody else that's not public school, it's the cost is $200. So it's not very much. No. It's not. I mean, like I say, we're the only ones that I know of in the country that provide that training at that cost. So when we when we announced it the first time, it was in December of last year, and we had a March training date from our fellow. She was going to train 24 teachers. It was going to be virtual because of COVID. Um, and it was spring break for Orange County. And so I was like, you know, I just don't think we're going to get enough teachers to want to do it here locally because everybody needed a break. And so I said, let's just open it up. Let's just open it up on our, our Facebook page. And, you know, anybody, you know, whoever fills the first 24 spots gets them. Well, I didn't really realize what that was going to do. And we had over 375,000 people um, from every continent that I know of, except what? Antarctica. Yes. Wow. Trying to get the training. It broke the internet. So Kim Kardashian and OG training um, are capable <laughs> of, of breaking the internet, apparently. There's a huge, huge need for it. And I hope that, you know, we can help others do this in other places, even if they aren't Read Charitable Foundation, 
but that we can help other groups to start providing this training because teachers are desperate for it. Parents are desperate for it. And it, it is life changing. And for Reed, I should just say, he just had to have his follow-up, you know, so every three years, um, they have to have a follow-up psycho ed evaluation to keep their accommodations and things like that in school. Reed just tested like he is no longer dyslexic, which of course we know that's not true. Um, he'll always be dyslexic, but he is remediated for dyslexia. He needs the second half. So he's in fifth grade. Um, he needs the Latin and Greek. That's kind of the next you know, phase of OG training, but he is remediated for purposes of, of his grade level. And um, his IQ went up another 19 points. Oh my gosh. I know. And his, his neuropsych uh, evaluator was like, this is what happens when kids get Orton Gillingham five days a week to fidelity during the school day. It is life changing and it is brain changing. He's got all the gifts that come with dyslexia and ADHD, but a rewiring of the neural pathways so that he is reading more like someone who is not dyslexic. Okay. So can you talk real briefly about why this is so important to get this training when these kids are young? Because remember, I've got this 19-year-old who's in college now. (laughs) I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, too, it's so first of all, you know, there's the neuroplasticity piece, right? Like it's easier when they're little to get this um, training and for it to impact their brains than when you're older and, you know, there's less neuroplasticity, but also to me, the bigger piece is the self-esteem piece. And I mean, it only took till six years old for Reed to think he was the dumbest boy in the school and that he didn't belong in school and needed to quit. I mean, it doesn't take long for a child to, for it to destroy their self-esteem. And it is so hard to get that back. So the sooner that they can be identified and, you know, in some cases, for example, some of our inner city schools where teachers are getting trained in OG, those children are never going to be able to have their parent go pay 1200 or 2000 It depends where you are. In, in New York, it, you know, it can be up to, I think, like five or $7,000 to get, you know, the actual diagnosis through a neuropsych. And so um, many, many children will never, ever, ever get an actual identification of ADHD or dyslexia. But if they if their teachers are properly trained and how to provide that support from the very beginning, those kiddos don't have to necessarily be identified to get the support that they need to be successful. And it doesn't mean they're going to be, you know, as quick a reader as Kenzie is who's not dyslexic, but they have to be able to have the ability to read. And then the beauty of an identification is also that, you know, you get to start learning about the strengths. If you've got teachers that are educated and like, hey, here's where the struggles are, but this is how you support it. But also don't forget, here are the gifts. And you've got to be looking for those things. These kids tend to be great artists. They tend to be incredible athletes. They're the builders. They're the they're the math geniuses who, you know, are going to be the engineers um, you know, these kids are reads like the king of negotiation. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, teachers hate it when they're little, um, because they want you to be quiet and sit there and don't 
um, come up with any brilliant suggestions on how I could do it different. But if we don't squash that gifting, it is what he's going to do with the rest of his life. And so knowing that, knowing where the gifts lie is um, so important. And every one of them, every one of them has at least one unique gifting. It's just finding it. I could not agree more. And I think that um, they become fearless too. Um, They're problem solvers because there's always a wall up, right? And so they have to figure out how to get around the wall. That assumes that their mental health is still intact. And I think that for so many of these kids, ADHD or dyslexia, that's probably the biggest problem. All of the shame that then leads to, you know, serious mental health issues. For sure. And addiction. You know, I look, like I say, I I look back in my family and um, I, knowing what I know now, I see where this came from. And I was so scared when Reed first got diagnosed and I was reading the statistics about addiction. I was like, oh my gosh, we have, Andrew has it on, you know, my husband on both sides of his family. I have it on both sides of my family. Oh my gosh, she doesn't stand a chance. Well, then I start really researching and understanding that, you know, if you don't have it, it, it's more about not having an identification and not getting proper support that once you, and, and feeling so bad about yourself and the shame and all those things that come with it, that once they're old enough that they're not under your thumb they self-medicate and that's where the addiction is coming from and not from, um, you know, taking medication. You know, I I was very resistant. I'm one of those moms that had plenty of misinformation about ADHD medication and thinking, oh, that's the, I'm going to introduce this gateway drug, you know, for him. I mean, I, you know, it's just, it's so sad. And, and only because of you and Dr. Hallowell and Dr. Bradshaw, I'm lucky enough to have been surrounded by knowledgeable, curious, responsible people giving good information that allowed me to get rid of some nonsensical data I'd read somewhere like in GQ magazine or something (laughs) silly, you know, like I really think I read an article about how we're medicating our boys. And I think it was in a GQ article. There was one in the New York Times. Yeah. And so that I read it before Reed was at this stage and I was like, oh, that's terrible. I just can't believe we would do that. It's a awful thing that we would do. And it was going to prevent me from providing my son with the very thing that could change his life. It's just, you know, so it's, it's the key is continuing to talk about it, I think, and raising awareness and getting good people and knowledgeable people in the conversation and admitting what they do, know and don't know. I'm not an expert, but I have got a ton of anecdotal data and I am working in a foundation where we are talking to individuals with ADHD and dyslexia globally and training teachers and seeing that data and the impact. And um, this is a completely preventable problem that will really change our world for the better for everyone, whether you're impacted by dyslexia and ADHD or not. Well, and the thing about it too is, you know, the comments about addiction, if you look at the studies, it's actually the converse. So there's a 50% less chance of addiction for kids that are medicated. Yeah. 
for ADHD. And I, and yeah. I think it's with stimulant medication. So yes. Um, okay. I've got one last question for you, Jan. Okay. <laughs> what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD and let's say dyslexia as well? What do you think the key is? I think that it's twofold. Um, but the major one is uh, it's, it's a balance. I think there's a remediation piece, um, for both. That's really, really important. And so, you know, Orton Gillingham is that for dyslexia as it relates to ADHD, it is potentially medication or, you know, coaching and learning workarounds if medication is not an option or not successful, um, you know, for, for you. Uh, understanding what it really is and, you know, where you're going to need support is critical. And then the other piece, I believe for both of them is the strengths. You have to know that you have incredible strengths because of it. And so I don't accept the terminology of a disability at all as it relates to dyslexia. These kids are not learning disabled. They are more than capable of learning. Their environment is disabling currently. Yes. Yes. Same thing for ADHD. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, I just think that knowing your strength and I see that in read, um, you know, I didn't get to know it until I was a grown up and kind of already knew I had a strength, but I didn't really understand why. But I'm so happy that my son gets to see, yep, reading and writing and spelling was initially a, a really hard struggle. And, you know, you're it, it's always going to be a little bit harder um, for you, particularly if you have to handwrite something because of dysgraphia. But, you know, I also always talk about in this day and age, you're, you're, you're never going to turn in a handwritten report kiddo. So like, it's going to be fine, you know, learn how to type and learn how to do speech to text. But the, the bigger piece is like, but read, here are these gifts that you have. Yes. Lovely. So Jen, where can people find you if they want to know more about you? They want to know more about Read Charitable Foundation. Yeah, our website is um, www.readcharitablefoundation.org, and that's R-E-E-D, charitablefoundation.org. It is a little sad that it's that long, um, so that someone with dyslexia has to spell that, Um, but that is the best place to find us. We also have a YouTube channel. We're also on um, Facebook and Instagram. And then uh, also our email address that actually goes directly to me is info at readcharitablefoundation.org. And so if, um, if someone's listening and they want to contribute to the Read Charitable Foundation, where do they go? Is that on the website as well? It is. Right at the top banner, there is a donate button and it's currently PayPal and it's about to get, there's multiple steps and we're all learning all about website optimization and donation (laughs) optimization, all that good stuff. But um, yeah, it's right there at the top of the page. You know what? I think it is just crazy and so amusing that you named your son Reed. Like, how (laughs) does that even happen? I know. And that that we didn't spell it (laughs) R-E-A-D. I I have to say, I don't think that things happen by accident. I really... um, 
I believe, yeah, Yeah. that, you know, there is a purpose for everything. And, um, you know, we took a name that, that we loved and then he hated it, um, for a little while. And now we've turned it into something, um, really positive again. That's just lovely. So all of those links are going to be in the show notes. Jen, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. I want you to know this is the longest podcast episode (laughs) we've ever recorded. You had so much to say, and you just said it in such a way that um, I think that um, so many parents and not even parents, because, you know, we've all been kids at one point. So I always want to encourage our listeners that just because it's about children, it doesn't mean that it doesn't involve you because you're going to learn so much about yourself by listening to all of these episodes, right? Yeah, it's so true. Well, I have a tendency to talk too long, Tracy, so I blame this on ADHD also. (laughs) I know, I know, but I make jokes all the time about, you know, all the bro podcasts, right? They're two hours and three hours and, you know, (laughs) and I'm always worried about, oh my God, are we going to go over an hour? So I'm like, screw it. I just loved everything that you were saying. And I think the world needs to know about this. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to do it. And truly, I couldn't mean it more. I just think you are killing it and you're helping so many people, including myself. So thank you so very much. Absolutely. It is my complete and total pleasure. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Jennifer Knopf, (laughs) I have to... I had to constantly think about because it's spelled K-N-O-P-F. And because I'm German, I always want to say Knopf. And so I have to stop myself. Anyway, let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. So I'm half German and I'm half Japanese because people are going to look at me and look at my name and say, wait, you're German? So anyway... (laughs) Your reviews, they really help in that regard. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.